But we're in Numbers 35, and we're looking at this, this passage as we've continued going through the book of Numbers. Now we see the people of Israel, again, they're encamped on the plains of Moab on the east side of the Jordan River, preparing to enter into the promised land. And we see some things here about the tribe of Levi and God's special instructions for them. And so if you're able to, if you would stand with me in honor of God and his word as we read together this morning. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Numbers 35, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Command the people of Israel to give the Levites some of the inheritance of their possession as cities for them to dwell in. And you shall give to the Levites pasture lands round the cities. The cities shall be theirs to dwell in, and their, their pasture lands shall be for their cattle and for their livestock and for all their beasts. The pasture lands of the cities which you shall give to the Levites shall reach out from the wall of the city outwards a thousand cubits all round. And you shall measure outside the city on the east side two thousand cubits, and on the south side two thousand cubits, and on the west side two thousand cubits, and on the north side two thousand cubits, the city being in the middle. This shall belong to them as pasture land for their cities. The cities that you give to the Levites shall be the six cities of refuge where you shall permit the manslayer to flee. In addition to them, you shall give 42 cities. All the cities that you give to the Levites shall be 48 with their pasture lands. And as for the cities that you shall give from the possession of the people of Israel, from the larger tribes, you shall take many. And from the smaller tribes you shall take few, each in proportion to the inheritance that it inherits, shall give of its cities to the Levites. And the Lord, verse 9, spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. The cities shall be for you a refuge from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. And the cities that you shall be, and the, and the cities that you, sh, you give shall be your city, six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities beyond the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. And if he struck him down with a stone tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if he struck him down with a wooden tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. And if he pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him, lying in wait so that he died, or an enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. But if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or hurled anything on him without lying in wait or used a stone that could cause death without seeing him, dropped it on him so that he died, though he was not his enemy and did not seek his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with these rules. And the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood. And the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he had fled. 
and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who is anointed with the holy oil. But if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of his city or of refuge to which he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of his blood. For he must remain in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may, be, may return to the land of his possession. And these things shall be for a statute and rule for you throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. And you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. And Father, we, we do trust in you. We recognize you as our, our great inheritance, our, our portion forever. We pray that you would dwell in our midst in a special way as we seek you through your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. An inheritance, an inheritance is something that's, that's yours because of, of who you are, your, your identity. You don't have to, to purchase something or do something in order to be the, the beneficiary of, of a will if you're listed as a beneficiary. You are a beneficiary. You have an inheritance because of your identity, just, just simply who you are. Sometimes, though, of course, in, in human interactions, inheritance can become kind of messy. Howard Hughes, famous inventor, a recluse, uh, just kind of a, a brilliant individual, also a very wealthy individual. And Howard Hughes died in 1976 at the age of 70. When he died at the age of 70, he was worth two and a half billion dollars, and there was a frantic search for his will. They couldn't find one. People came forward and said, yes, as far as we know, there was no will left by Howard Hughes. But then something kind of interesting happened. Then there was an envelope that was found on a desk at the headquarters of the Mormon Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. And inside this envelope was a, a handwritten will. And the will said that, that this is the last will and testament of Howard Hughes, and it was this, this handwritten will, and it said, uh, I, I'm leaving all my fortune to these, these 16 entities, and it divided his, his uh, estate into these 16 equal shares. And 14 of the shares, this, this will stated, or to go to current and former family members. And then one of the 16 shares was to go to the Mormon church. And then one of the shares was to go to Melvin Dumar. Who is Melvin Dumar, you might ask? That was the question that everyone was asking when they read this will. Who in the world is Melvin? And it turned out 
Melvin was a gas station attendant in Nevada. And Melvin had quite the story to tell. Melvin said that some five, six years ago, he had been driving along the highway in the desert, and he had come across this strange man on the edge of the highway. And he had stopped his car, he had offered to help the man, the man said, yeah, please give me a ride to Las Vegas. And so Melvin said, well, sure. And so he drove the man to Las Vegas, and Melvin said, when they got near to the city, the man said, actually, you probably need to know this, I'm I'm Howard Hughes. And Melvin said he didn't believe the man. He dropped him off and he said, and and I never heard anything about this will, but my my assumption is that this this reclusive billionaire had just been so grateful that he had included me as one of his 16 heirs of a $2.5 billion fortune. When $2.5 billion is on the line, people do some investigating, and they begin to investigate this will. And they found several odd things about it. First of all, it was just full of misspelled words, words that Howard Hughes probably should have spelled correctly. It also named as his executor a person that Hughes had kind of fallen out with. He had been under the employ of Hughes at one time, but they had had a falling out, and so that was kind of a little suspicious. It left one of some of the portions were to ex-wives that Hughes had very explicitly said, I want them to have none of my fortune after I am gone. It also... uh, very, very interestingly, uh, left money to the Mormon church, and uh, Hughes had not been a Mormon. And uh, the other interesting thing, despite the fact that Melvin said he had, had never heard of this will, the envelope in which it was found had his thumbprint on it, which seemed kind of suspicious, right? Not surprisingly, the will was declared invalid, and Melvin Dumar got nothing. Although, I think recently, recently it was five or, five or ten years ago, Melvin was back in court trying again. When there's a lot of money on the line, an inheritance is going to perhaps be, perhaps be a, a tricky thing. There's going to be some contested aspects of it. Wills and, and inheritance and human dealings can be kind of messy. But the thing for those of us who are part of the family God, the thing for us to remember is that we are heirs. And not only are we heirs, we are heirs of a a fortune that is beyond our ability to comprehend. We are heirs of a fortune that makes two and a half billion dollars seem like nothing. And not only are we heirs of an incredible fortune We are heirs of a fortune that is secure. In other words, there's no human court that can take it away. There's nothing that any uh, greedy or unscrupulous person can do to rob us of our inheritance. Our inheritance is secure, and it is secure because of God himself promising us that inheritance. God believes that you and I, understanding the nature of our inheritance, will change our lives and will affect us in terms of what we do and how we think and how we live. And so we we see in Scripture God doing things to cause us to think about our eternal inheritance. Now, in in the text that we're looking at this morning, we encounter two groups of people. In fact, look there at at Numbers 35 with me, if you will, and and you kind of can flip back a couple chapters, 
and we were in Numbers 31 last time we were together looking at this text. And in Numbers 31, you see the vengeance on the Midianites. Then you come to Numbers chapter 32, and you see the story of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh telling Moses, hey, we want our inheritance on the east side of the Jordan River. We know that God has promised us the land on the western side of the Jordan River, but we want our inheritance over here on this side. We'll help you conquer the territory on the west side of the Jordan. And Moses says, okay, that's all right. Your portion can be here. So the the two and a half tribes take their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan River and come to chapter 33. And Moses kind of gives this, this recap of where they've been and where they are now and the task that lies before them in conquering the land. Then you come to chapter 34, and we see, okay, here's where the land is going to be. Here are the the borders of the land. And here, at the end of of chapter 34, Moses says, and here's how we're going to divide it out. We're going to cast lots, and then this is the portion that's going to be divided up, and, and here's how we're going to give all the tribes their inheritance. But here's the interesting thing. There's, there's another group that's mentioned as we come to chapter 35, a subgroup of the bigger group. And it's the Levites. And as we look at the Levites, we see something interesting. The Levites don't get an inheritance of the land. Here's how we're going to divide up. Here's where the land's going to be. Here's how we're going to conquer. Levites, you're going to come with us. And, and yet, Levites, you, you get nothing in terms of the land. It seems rather unfair, right? Here they are, they're participating, they're part of the, the people of God. In fact, not only are they part of the people of God, they're the, the people who are tasked with, with uh, mediating between the people of God. Why are they treated differently? And what we're going to see here as we look at Numbers 35 is this. We're going to see that the, the Levites, the way that they're, they're treated and the way that they are told that they have a different type of inheritance than the rest of the people what that tells us, helps the Israelites see, is that the inheritance is about more than the land. The inheritance that God promises his people is not just about the land, it's about himself. What God does to the Levites here, in terms of saying this is what your inheritance is going to be, it points us to a much deeper truth about the inheritance of God promises us, and it tells us the inheritance is ultimately about God himself. And what God does here is not unfair, it's not mean, it's actually gracious, because he's causing the people to turn ultimately to him. God believes that you, understanding your inheritance, will change you. If you believe that the 50, 100 years, however long God grants you on this earth, if, if you believe that, that this amount of time is, is the, the sole purpose for which you were created, it's going to affect how you live, right? But if you and I understand that this time that God has granted us is a very fleeting moment that prepares us for a, a time of eternity, that's going to cause us to live during that temporary time much differently, Right? Here's here's what I want you to see as the main idea this morning. The things God does, okay, the things God does to help us realize and proclaim that our joy is found ultimately and always in Jesus Christ are gracious things. Let me say that again. 
The things God does, the things God does to you and to me to help us realize and proclaim, so to to realize intellectually and then, then proclaim with our lives, the things that he does to help us realize and proclaim that our joy is found ultimately and always in Jesus Christ, those things are gracious things. God is going to do some things in your life and my life to cause us to realize, look, my joy is not ultimately found in this, in this moment. My joy is ultimately and always in Jesus Christ. And the things that God does in your life to help you understand that may seem like hard things, they may seem like unfair things, but actually those things are God's gracious hand on your life, causing you to realize the treasure of Jesus Christ even more. The things that God does to make us realize how fleeting and temporary our life are, those are gracious things that God is doing to cause us to treasure his son, Jesus Christ, more. Now let's see this in the text. Two things I want us to to grasp as we look at the story of the Levites. The first thing is this. We are a people, number one, we are a people who are in the land, but not of the land, okay? We're a people who are of the land, I'm sorry, in the land, but not of the land, like the Levites. And notice what happens here, okay? The people, verse 1, they're encamped in the plains of Moab. They're, that's the east side of the Jordan River. This is where they're going to be throughout the book of Numbers. We only have one more chapter left after this, and then they're, they're here throughout the book of Deuteronomy. They're, they're camped in the, on the east side of the Jordan River. And then we, we see uh, in verses 2 and 3, the Israelites are told, look, uh, you need to take care of the Levites. You're getting your inheritance, and you need to give them cities for them to dwell in. And these aren't cities that they alone would dwell in. They live in these cities with other Israelites, but they're, they're to dwell there, and they're to dwell there in a special way, and they're, they're scattered throughout the land that God has provided. We also see then, in verses 4 and 5, kind of the dimensions of these cities. And, and there's, there's kind of hard, a little bit hard for us to understand, but basically what he's saying is, okay, here's here the, we're not talking about a large city necessarily, we're talking about a small city, kind of like a village, a, a cluster of homes, and so there'd be a wall around this. And he says, go out from that wall, a thousand cubits, or about, uh, I think it's like uh, 500 yards, go out that distance, and then uh, that, that area is reserved for pasture lands. And then it's about 2,000 cubits in, in length around the city and on each side. And as the city would grow, that, that distance would grow, presumably, as well. And then in verses 6 through 8, we see kind of some more descriptions about this city, kind of some overviews. You're going to give them these, six, you're going to give them these cities, and then six of the cities are going to be what he calls cities of refuge. And we'll talk more about that as we come into verse 9. And then he says, altogether, we're talking about 48 cities with the, the land surrounding them, and you're going to give them from the possession of the people of Israel, from the larger tribes, you're going to take a lot, smaller tribes, you're going to take a few. And it's interesting, as he talks about what the Levites are going to get, he, he doesn't use the word inheritance for them. He doesn't use the same words to describe what they're getting as he uses to describe what the Israelites were getting. Now, what's, what's the point? Something different is happening with the Levites. The Levites are are treated differently. In fact, let me read a couple of of passages 
that help us understand what's happening with them. You go back to, to Numbers 18, and this is what Moses says about the Levites in, Num- in Numbers 18. He, he's talking about uh, how they're going to be cared for. He says in verse 19 of Numbers 18, he says, All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a, a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have, again, he's, he's part of the, the priests, the Levites, You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. And then and listen to what God says next. He says, okay, so Aaron, Aaron's, a, Aaron's part of a, a, a clan that's a subset of the Levites. He says, you, your people, no inheritance. And then listen to what God says. He says, I, I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. To the Levites, I've given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting, so the people of Israel do not come near the tent of meeting lest they bear their sin and die. But the Levites shall do the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear the iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations, and among the people of Israel they shall have no inheritance. Deuteronomy chapter 10, we see in verse 9, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord your God said to him. Deuteronomy 14, it talks about how the the people are to sacrifice in order to provide for the Levites. And it says, you you do this because the Levite has no portion or inheritance with you. The sojourner, the fatherless, the widow who are within your towns, they shall come out and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work that your hands do. In other words, sacrifice to care for these people who lack resources. Joshua, chapter 13, talks about dividing the land, and then you come to verse 33, but to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave nada, that's the Hebrew word, uh, no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel, Yahweh, is their inheritance, just as he said to them. Now, what does this mean? What do we see as we look at the story of the Levites here? Can you imagine being a Levite, right? I mean, you are, you've, you've been in Egypt, you've, you've gone through the wilderness, or your parents have gone through the wilderness, you're, you're part of this new generation, and you have endured some terrible things. And, and now, like, the, the big culmination of the story is taking place, and you're, you're getting ready to go into the promised land, and you realize, you know, as, as Moses talks about this region and that region, as we prepare to go in here, I'm not going to get to enjoy this in the same way. The Levites are told, look, you don't grow roots. You're not attached to this land in the same way. And and what, what does that mean? It means that the people, other people are going to have to provide for you as they generously give to the Lord. As, as God provides for them, they're going to provide for you. And so what is that telling the Levites? The Levites are saying, look, ultimately our trust is in God. And as they say our trust is in God and God provides, they're saying we have a better portion. Our ultimate inheritance is not found in this geographical location, but our ultimate inheritance and joy and treasure is Yahweh himself. And the people who are tasked with the job of mediating between God and the people are saying, look, the land is not ultimate, God is. The people, through their sacrificial giving, help the Levites be a picture of finding ultimate joy in God 
himself. And these, these Levites, they have these 48 cities and they're scattered throughout the land, constantly reminding the people, hey, our ultimate inheritance is in God. It's not an unfair thing. It's, it's a gracious thing, although it costs them financially in the short term. You and I are, are Levites, right? We're Levites. Peter, in 1 Peter 2.9, says you're a chosen race. You're, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of, of him who called you out of darkness into his, his marvelous light. Like the Levites, we live in the land in a different way. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 11. He says, he's talking about the people of faith. He says, they died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a better homeland. What is that? That's, that's us. We are... Hold on, let me finish this up again just a little more. We are in the land, but not of the land, right? What are some ways that we forget that? It's hard to think about losing our possessions, right? When I, th- when I think about the things that I have that are, that are physical things, there are some things I think about losing, and, and it, it makes me very uneasy, right? But God in his grace sometimes is going to take things away from me so that I can understand that my my ultimate treasure is found in him. Let me give you some applications here. What does this mean for you and for me as we live in the land but not of it? The first thing it means is is we, we dwell differently, right? We dwell differently. The way that we choose where we're going to live and the locations that we decide to live in, they're different than other people. We make different decisions than other people might make as we realize, look, this is a, this is a temporary place and my ultimate inheritance is found elsewhere. We're going to be called to locations that most people would not be called for reasons that most people would not go because we realize, look, this is a, this is a temporary time. Had the opportunity to talk to the uh, middle schoolers yesterday at the their retreat, and um, most of your kids are doing well if they're there. Um, a couple, I don't know, but um, I'm told that we're going to have a 90% retention rate. Um, as, as I was talking with the kids about about faith and about some of the things that God may ask us to do in faith, we said, you know, what are, what are some things that 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 it may cost us to have faith? And one of the kids said, "Our life, you know, our life." And, and he was absolutely right. But not only may it cost us our life, it may cost us a lot of things up to and including our life. We live differently. We give differently, right? The, the, the way in which the, the people of Israel are called to give here is, is in a, a sacrificial way. They give differently than people who are, who are planting deep roots who say this this. This life is all that I have, and I need to amass all the things that I can. They, they give differently. The, the people who are part of our church give differently than people who are not followers of Christ. We 
live differently because of the way we dwell and give. Giving and our generosity serves as an antidote to covetousness. Luke 12, 15, uh, Jesus says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Being able to give is a way that we, that we combat covetousness in our hearts and, and proclaim, hey, we are in the land but not of it. Maybe you've heard of uh, John Wesley and, and some of the, the amazing things that uh, decisions that he made whenever, whenever he was 28 years old, whenever he was 28 years, years old, and this was in 1731, he decided to, to limit his expenses so that he could give more money away. And I, I believe in the, in the first year he said, okay, I'm going to, to live on, on 28 pounds a year. And then he, uh, he made 30 pounds, so he gave two pounds away. Next year, he, he doubles his income. He receives 60 pounds and yet still lives on 28 pounds. And th- that year, he's able to give 32 pounds away. A year after that, his income triples from the first year, and, and, but he keeps his expenses at 28 pounds a year, roughly. Sometimes he, sometimes he splurges and goes up to 30. But throughout the, the rest of his life, Wesley lives on about 30 pounds a year, and, and some years he's making well over 1,000 pounds. And yet, he says, okay, this is what I'm going to give on. I'm going to live differently because of my, my hope in Christ, where my treasure is. In fact, the way that he lived was, was so countercultural that the government got suspicious of him. They, they realized that he wasn't paying enough taxes, the amount of taxes you would have to pay if you were buying a lot of silver, that they knew how, how famous he was, and so they, they basically audited him. They said, okay, we, we want to see your silver. And he says, well, I've got four spoons here they are, you know, two spoons here, two spoons there, and as long as there are poor people, I don't need any more spoons. Brothers and sisters, may you and I live in such a way that people are suspicious, right? People who live as though there's a future inheritance, live differently than those who say, I've got to get all I can right now because this is it. And God is going to do some things to help us understand this reality. For Israel, for for particularly the Levites, it was a, a radical thing. Look, you don't get any inheritance, and God is going to do some radical things for you and to me as well. Sometimes those things are going to be very, feel very negatively. He's going to cause us to to suffer financial loss. He's going to sometimes take away some things, take away health, take away other things to help us realize, look, this is not where my ultimate treasure is. Other people may have different types of things that I have in this life, but I'm I'm looking forward to life to come. Sometimes the things are going to be positive. Sometimes we are going to see gifts that we give do, do incredible things. In fact, I encourage you, again, come back this evening to our, our gathering of thanks. And I, I saw just a, a little, little blurb of a video that we're going to show tonight with our, our missionaries telling what they're thankful for. And what they say is great, but even more than, than hearing what they're saying is just thinking about who they are and where they are and how they're serving and the fact that, that our church is a part of those ministries in places because of God's people giving faithfully. Now here's, here's the next thing that I want us to see. Not only are we are people who are in the land but not of the land, secondly, we are people who are in the land, but 
even as we're in their land, what do we do? We proclaim the hope of a better land. Look at what's happening here in the rest of this chapter. This is kind of a, this is kind of a thing that we don't maybe talk a lot about. This isn't a very... <clears throat> Uh, I, don't, I don't see this story in flannel graphs very often. It's, it's not a story we, we look at. But what happens in the rest of the chapter? You look at verses 9 through 15, and we see that, that there are going to be these six cities that are set up as cities of refuge. And these are some of the... So 48 cities are given to the Levites, and six of these cities are called cities of refuge. There's three on the east side of the Jordan River and three on the west side. And these cities are cities of refuge. And it says that they can be for either the people of Israel or for the stranger, the sojourner. Anyone, Israelite, sojourner, stranger, who kills a person without intent may flee there. Now, in verses 16 through 21, Moses gives some example of, of murder. You know, so if, if a person intentionally kills another person, that's not what these cities are for. So you go up to a person, you say, I hate you, I've always hated you, look that way, and they look that way, and you hit them with a rock, and then you run to the city of refuge, and, and you say, hey, city of refuge, you, you can't do that. Okay. But let's say that you're in an argument with a person, and, and just in the heat of the moment as you guys are kind of uh, arguing, you shove the person and you accidentally kill them. Or you're, you're working on something and you, you drop a rock and you look down and you think, oh my goodness, what just happened? You actually dropped a rock on someone or a, a, a tool that you're working on. There's some sort of accidental or not premeditated murder. Then you can flee to these, these cities of refuge. And what would happen, we see in verses 24 and following, kind of the procedures. So you'd, you'd flee to the city and then you'd be, be taken by the the people who are part of that city, and you'd be taken outside the city, and there would be this, this, this trial that was held. And if, if it was confirmed, hey, there's, there's no evidence that this person intended to kill the other person, what would you do? They would take you back into the city of refuge, and you could, could live there and be safe from capital punishment. You say, well, now, why, why would there be capital punishment for an accident? Well, because of the Israelite law and the desire by God to show the, the sacredness of human life, blood required blood. Remember, this is a, a, we're seeing a gospel picture here as we looked at, we talked about this before, as we looked at some of these laws. Genesis 9 says, for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning from every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And so if you've taken the life of another man, there, there needs to be a reckoning. Exodus 21.12, whoever strikes a man so he dies shall be put to death. Leviticus 24.17, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 19 talks about this, this requirement. The people of Israel, we've talked about this before as we Leviticus, the people of Israel are in the presence of a holy God who dwells in the land. And the, the shedding of blood is an offense that, that requires atoning. Blood requires blood. So what God does here is very graciously provide a substitute. Someone still has to die 
for the death that's taken place here, even whenever it's not a premeditated death, still blood is required. But what he allows to happen here in these cities of refuge, he allows the blood of the high priest to serve as a substitute. It's kind of a cool picture, right? What What does the high priest do? The high priest offers intercession between the people and God. He offers sacrifices to, to atone, to, to cover for the sins of the people. And then even in his, his last act of dying, this high priest who serves as a picture of Christ for us provides atonement, provides a sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice for the people. The, the point is this. These cities scattered throughout the the land not only provide the people with a picture of where their ultimate inheritance is found, they also provide a, a picture of the gospel message. Where safety can be found and where atonement can be found in the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9 draws this parallel in verse 11 and following. The writer of Hebrews says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and the more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of, his, of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He talks about the blood of Christ, how much more compared with the animal sacrifices and their blood, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that blood purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive what? The promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who makes it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Brothers and sisters, you and I have an inheritance. And we have an inheritance, not because of something that we've done. We have an inheritance because of who we are in Christ. An inheritance has been inaugurated with with his blood. And not only do we have an inheritance, but as we understand what that inheritance is, and as we live in light of of that future inheritance, it changes us. Again, if we think about life as kind of this this temporary moment and say, okay, my whole whole focus is on these uh, 20 years or 30 years or 50 years or 60 years or 160 years, however long that is, if my whole focus is on that, we've missed out on what God desires us to understand and obtain. But if we say, okay, Father, I, I understand that there's, there's been a death that provides for me a, a future inheritance. Living in the light of that will change us in, in radical, radical ways. You know, one of the prayers that I, I pray on a daily basis for my, my children 
two, two parts of the prayer. One is that they would understand their inheritance. Not the inheritance that they're hoping to get from me, but they would understand their, their eternal inheritance, as, as Paul says in, in Ephesians 1. I, I say, Lord, help my children understand their, their, their eternal inheritance. And then I say, and, and Father, help them make disciples. In other words, help them, help them uh, fulfill the purpose for which you've created them. And as, as they think about their inter- eternal inheritance, that's going to be the passion of their life. Now, that's the praying that my children make disciples is the last part of the, the prayer that I pray for them. Because it's the hardest thing for me to pray. Because I realize it's, it's going to cost them. I realize it's going to cost me to have children who are disciple makers, right? It may cost them temporary things. It may cost them, it will certainly cost them some frivolous things. But it it may cost them, it may cost them living close to me. It may cost them family. It, It may cost them their lives. That's not a prayer I take lightly, right? But what do I see here in Numbers 25? This location is not my permanent inheritance. I don't want this to be the permanent inheritance for for my children. I want them to look to a greater inheritance that's found in God and God alone. And I want them, as they live in this way, that, that change to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to live in a way that's different from my, from my culture, that, that change is a noticeable change. Whenever my children, whenever I'm, I live in a way that's different from the people around us, people say, boy, that, that seems pretty odd, and it is a means by which we can proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. People who are in the land but proclaim the hope of a better land are, are redemptive proclaimers. They're proclaiming, hey, this, is a, this, is a, this message that I'm proclaiming, this, this is a, a place that you can flee to and receive life and hope. Howard Hughes made a fortune and left it for people to, to fight over. God in his grace says, no, turn away from things that are worthless, and I'm going to do some things in your life to help you realize and proclaim that your joy is found ultimately and always in Jesus Christ. And those things that he does to do that are gracious, gracious things. Let me invite the the men who are passing out the elements of communion to begin to to make their way uh, forward here. And as they do, let me just encourage you to, to, to spend some time here as we think about this, this passage, to, to spend some time here saying, God, uh, reveal to me those things that are causing me to not look at my eternal inheritance. Maybe, you know, if you were to, to, to think through, what, what, is the, what is the one thing that you say, well, I, I could not live my life without? God, help me not make those things idols. Lord, reveal to me in my heart those things that are, that are keeping me from rightly understanding who you are and the inheritance you have in your son Jesus. What's causing me not to treasure him in the way that I ought? 
I'm, I'm going to pray, and then the, they're going to begin to, to pass out the elements. But I encourage you just to spend some time asking God, Lord, as I, as I, uh, as I think about these elements that represent the sacrifice of, of your body and the shedding of your covenant that inaugurates this, the shedding of your blood that inaugurates this covenant, Father, help me treasure you. Help me treasure Jesus Christ, your Son, recognizing that, that this is my great treasure. And help me live my life in light of that. Father, we pray that for ourselves. Uh, our temptation is to hold on very tightly to the, the physical things that are around us. And sometimes even to, to make claims about these being things you want us to have. And, and we recognize that you do give us good things to rejoice in and, and to, to, to have uh, joy in, 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 uh, in the things that you've given us. But, but Lord, Lord let, let those not be our treasure and make mistaken assumptions about what you would have us do with those things. Father, help us to be generous, to be gracious, to be lavish in, in giving things to others. Father, even as we think about this morning, the opportunity to, to uh, give to our benevolence, uh, our benevolence offering as, as we leave here, help us to be generous in, in providing for other people so that others would look at the way that we live our lives and say there's, there's something different about their hope and they would turn to you. Convict us this morning as we spend this, this time of prayer thinking about and asking you to reveal these things. Convict us of things that we need to let go of as we pursue you, our great treasure. We pray this in Jesus' name.